I was saying before we started recording, I went up upstate New York to visit cousin Ben, a fan of the show, friend of the awesome. family, family member of our friends. I don't know. And, and we, we're fans of him. We're fans of him. He's a good, he's a good guy. Uh, we got a bunch of sandwiches from like this old prolific Italian deli up there um, called Rossi Deli. Like people drive from out of state to go get sandwiches at this spot. Oh and I, I think they're worth it. Honestly, they're really good. Um, so we got three different sandwiches to try, but we were trying to come up with a universal d- dimensions of rating a sandwich. And we didn't quite finish, but I want to give give these to you <laughs> and see if you agree, if you disagree, how you feel about this as as a way to rate a sandwich. Yeah. Uh, so number one, ease of use. How easy is it to eat this thing? Is it slip sliding around? Is it, can you actually fit it in your mouth? Yes. Number two. It's kind of related. Wait, is, is it, but it could be a good thing if you can't fit it all in your mouth because it's so bountiful. I, well, that's up to personal taste. It frustrates me sometimes. We'll, no, we'll, same. we'll get to that. Same. Okay. Second one is constitution. Does it hold together? If I take one bite, is this thing <laughs> oh, uh, like lost to the wind? Number three, moistness. I think, I don't know if it's a hot take, but I think every sandwich needs some kind of binding agent or some kind of wet ingredient to make it good. I, I agree. Yeah, smart. And then the fourth one's a spectrum. So it's where does it land on the consistency to variety spectrum? As in, is each bite, like a peanut butter or jelly sandwich, is super consistent. It's simple. You're getting the same thing from your first bite to your last bite. But if right. you're eating like something, one of these bountiful sandwiches, as you call it, with like a ton of different ingredients... Is is it a different bite every time? Is that good or bad? It depends right. on the sandwich. The fifth dimension, satiety. Is is it a meal? Can I am I full from this sandwich? Or is it like a cucumber finger sandwich? And then how compelling is the sandwich? Does it get better as it goes or does it get worse? Like if I'm eating something really salty or really spicy and I've had like the first few bites and then I'm like, okay, cool. I did it. Like I don't. Right anymore, or is it? Hey, I've got to keep going, or is it getting like we got a meatball parm and the meat, the sauce soaked into the bread as we left it, and it got better as it went. Is do you think there's anything missing? Is there anything you would add? Oh my god! To to properly classify and rate a sandwich, you're not. Well, these are all interesting because some of it can depend on your mood, yeah, or your hunger. You know, like I'm, I'm feeling. Like you said, a meatball. I'm feeling meatball-y today, or I'm feeling, yeah, you know, turkey club. Yeah, like I, I love, I love a BLT, and it's in the name. It's just three things. Like, you know, it's great. Or I think pound for pound, the best sandwich in the world is the French ham and cheese butter baguette. Oh yeah, you remember having those in Paris? That's like, good. Oh sure, it's just it, exceptional. But it's like the simplest thing ever. I've also had really complicated sandwiches that have been good. It just depends. Yeah. And so also there's a, I don't know, temperature factor mm-hmm. that could be in there. Mm-hmm. And similar to if it gets too soggy or not soggy enough or it tastes better, yeah. it may not taste as good as it cools if you're going that direction. But I guess that's, you're, you hit on that with like consistency throughout. Something I just realized None of this captures if it tastes good or not. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
I think that might be the most important thing to knock out of the park first. I'll keep refining it. This is not a sandwich podcast, though. This is a, a trivia podcast. What would you? I, I define it. I guess we haven't gotten into that. It's history and trivia. Now on. Well, we're only a year in. I don't know That's why true. we have to start putting labels on this. That's true. We're almost at our one-year anniversary. Congratulations. Yes. This is, of course, Fascinators. Welcome to Fascinators. It's a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to the weird and wonderful people, concepts, and stories that send us down the rabbit hole. Each episode, myself, Evan Atkinson, and my dad, Ken Atkinson, tell one another about something that is currently fascinating us. So, Dad, what's been on your mind recently? Well, I tell you, you inspired me last week with the oh. library yeah. conversation. Well, Nerd. you inspired me in so many ways. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So... 3200 BCE. I uh, pause, already paused. I don't think I needed to inspire you to start digging into. Oh, oh my gosh. 3200 BCE. But uh, yeah. okay. 32, I'm with you. It. I'm there. Okay. It's dusty. So maybe. Yeah. The, well, and the big event you might know is writing is considered invented Ooh. in 3200 BC or BCE. And so the Egyptians with their hieroglyphics and the Sumerians with coniform. Mm. And the two written languages have enough similarities that scholars believe they were co they co-evolved at the same time. Okay. And that they and that they built off each other. And they're in the same region yeah. of the um, world. So the earliest known advertisement to be discovered is from Thebes Ooh. in Egypt. Okay. And it's from 3000 BCE. And it was a lost and found ad written on papyrus. <laughs> so, and it was tech, technically just a lost ad. Yeah. A, lo a local citizen had lost his slave. Oh. So that's the first advertisement we have discovered in history. Wow. So I, I have little time to waste because so 3200 BCE, 3000 BCE, the first ad. So ideally we can get this episode out before December 16th. Okay. Because it's college bowl season, and I'm talking about sponsorships and advertising. Oh, we've come a long way since 3000 <laughs> BC. Yeah, the lost ad. Oh, my gosh. So there okay. are 43 bowl games cool. this year, college bowl games. So you've got the, and, and they're all sponsored. Okay. And that started like 1990-ish. It was the... Holiday Bowl, and it was sponsored it, it came, by the Holiday Spirit. Well, it's, it's the Poulon Weed Eater Bowl, so oh. they were the first ones. And I remember when that came out, it was just like so awkward, yeah, because all the bowl games had just been the Orange Bowl, the Rose Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, the Holiday Bowl, the, yeah. You know, and so they started sponsoring. So it's come, they're all sponsored now. So is the Rose Bowl got still like, sponsored? It is. I, okay. I was like, is there a company called Rose that I wasn't aware of? Oh, is it sponsored by 1-800-Flowers? No, it's one of those. Yeah, no, exactly. And and so they have a sponsorship for the bowl. They have sponsorship for the Tournament of Roses Parade. Okay. There's like a rib eating contest beforehand that has a sponsor. I mean, 
people sell all this stuff out. It's crazy. Yeah. So you've got the blue bloods of advertising. So like the big ones, like Prudential, Allstate, AT&T, Goodyear. Mm -hmm. But there's a few that I want to highlight of these okay. 43 bulls. So you've got the cricket bull. Okay. And so like me, you might ask, is it the insect? It's actually the phone company. Okay. I, d I wasn't aware they were still around, <laughs> to be honest. Well, there you go. That's why they need to sponsor these things. Dang. Okay. Well, shoot, I didn't look that close. Maybe it's the sport cricket. It's a little different. <laughs> We're trying to raise awareness for cricket by uh, appending it to American college football. Right. So you've got the Chick-fil-A Bowl. Okay. You might have heard of. They've had they've got like the longest. It's the Peach Bowl. They've been doing it since 1997, oh. their affiliation. So it's on Saturday, December 30th. Well, it couldn't be on a Sunday. Well, that's my question. If the game goes to overtime, do they just close? <laughs> Sorry, we can't do The Lord told us we can't play the great game anymore. Clear out the stadium. It's Sunday. Wow. Okay. So we have the Myrtle Beach Bowl. So Sponsored is, by Myrtle Beach? Yeah, it's the visitor center of oh. Myrtle Beach sponsors it. So like, I'm wait, I need like the Fargo Bowl. Yeah. Or some, something like that, just yeah. to get people in North Dakota in winter. <laughs> There's 68 Ventures Bowl. Have you heard of 68 Ventures? No. It doesn't yeah. quite roll off the tongue. No. I've got 68 Ventures, but the beach ain't one. <laughs> they are, they're a real estate company. Okay. So... There's the avocados from Mexico Bowl. Mm -hmm. I just know they're, you know, you know, they have that catchy jingle yeah. that they have. So I don't know. Our biggest export, I think, is like petroleum and corn and AR-15s <laughs> to Mexico. So well, I guess we come out ahead in that deal. Yeah. The, the Islita Bowl is, it's a casino in New Mexico. Oh. But super regional. Yeah. I would think. So we need like a, South of the Border Bowl yeah. in the Carolinas. The L.A. Bowl hosted by Gronk. What? Based on the novel <laughs> Push by Sapphire? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I think that's what... So, yeah, last year was the Jimmy Kimmel Bowl. I don't know if you remember that. No. Uh, yeah. What? So you could just... Yeah, it's bizarre. You got the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl. Yikes. So, yeah, they're spooky. So we won't, we'll be careful what we say about this. Yeah. Is it in listening? Uh, whatever, Bell Arena or Ball Arena, uh, makers of glass jars oh, and yeah. the Predator drone. Never <laughs> too far away from the military industrial complex. Well, and battling Lockheed Martin is Radiance Technologies Bowl. And I didn't know who they were, Radiance Technologies. Sound, it might, is it sinister? Yeah. Well, Department of Defense stuff. Okay. We've got the Wasabi Bowl. I love that. I support that. Right. Well, so the, I, again, I looked into it because I didn't know, I, I didn't know if it was like a condiment bowl yeah. that they're doing. No. And you may know them. They're some kind of big cloud storage. Oh, um, I'm less excited. Facility. I thought it was the food as well. Right. Bonkers. Well, speaking of food, famous Idaho potato bowl. You, okay. <laughs> New rule. If you're going to sponsor okay. a bowl, it has to be one word before bowl. It, you can't, you got it's the potato bowl. Congrats. Right. Like you can't do the full thing. 68 ventures. No. The venture bowl. That sounds good. They're getting their name out there. So, well, yeah. Well, they have to say famous Idaho as opposed to like the secret Montana spud bowl. 
<laughs> which, you know, is not broadcast, only uh -huh. on PBS. So the winner of that bowl game, the famous Idaho Potato Bowl, rolls off the tongue. They get covered in French fries, just like a big <laughs> bin of French fries. In a similar fashion, the winner of the Tony the Tiger Bowl gets eaten by a tiger. <laughs> they give him a head start, though. Yeah. Uh, frosted frosted cornflakes rain okay. down over the winning coach. The Cheez-It Bowl gets poured over. Cheez-Its gets po poured over the victorious coach. Now, here's one. If you win, you might actually lose. The okay. Duke's Mayo Bowl. Oh, no, no. Five gallons of mayonnaise are put over the coach. I'd I'd love to see like late late in the game, both teams are tied, and each coach is like trying to like sink the game for their team. Right. Like running the purpose, wrong way, they throw it to the other guys. Yeah, yeah. doing the wrong way. Marshall, yeah, passing the ball back and forth between the teams. You take it. You take it. We've had fifteen right. interceptions in the fourth quarter, <laughs> all on one play. Yeah. Now the one I could get behind is the Pop Tarts Bowl. Like I wouldn't. <laughs> Mind being buried in a pool in of pop darts. <laughs> yeah. So those were the specific ones. I mean, there's whatever, 25 more yeah. that don't excite me as much. So you <laughs> might notice that there's no beer, wine, or liquor sponsors, and that's an NCAA rule. Oh, interesting. Oh, because they're college yeah. age? Yeah. Okay. Right. However. The I mean, they come off Bowl. As, Yeah. They come off as holier than that. However, they allow the stadiums to sell nah, okay. liquor and stuff because that won't cut into it. But so the cost to sponsor a bowl is like 400000 for like a lower tier bowl. Okay. And $35 million for like a Ooh. rose bowl or an orange bowl, one of the larger ones. Dang. So then I just wanted to compare like with stadium rights. Like you have Barclays Center. Mm-hmm. That's right there. Yeah. And uh, City Field. So those are around $20 million a year to sponsor, okay. just to get the the naming rights. Yeah. And, but like Yankee Stadium and MSG are, are two of the few that don't sell their naming rights. Yeah. So, so uh, SoFi Stadium is probably the most expensive. It's in LA. It's $30 million Okay. A year. But even the ones like Lambeau Field, which is where the Packers play. That's the stadium's not sponsored, but like every entrance is. Okay. You know, like this is the Oscar Mayer entrance. You're coming or... in the Totino's Pizza Roll entrance to Lambeau <laughs> Stadium. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. So in general, national commercials, if you just run a, a normal 30-second ad on a TV show, it's around 100000 to 800000 And it just depends on like the show or the time of the day or what their expected ratings are going to be. Yeah. But a Super Bowl commercial is $7 million for 30 seconds. Oh, my gosh. That's... Which is just... I mean, I, well, shoot. That's a, that's a big it's, number. It's a big number, but they have... Super Bowl commercials have become such a, a thing that I wonder... I mean, I'm sure it's that price for a reason, a little bit. I, we're also saying Super Bowl too much. We have to call it the big game. Oh, uh, that's right. Legally. Forgive I, me. I don't think our reach is big enough that they're going to get litigious <laughs> with us. But you can never <laughs> be too careful. That's right. And I'm saying bull, B-U-L-L. -L, yeah, I've bull. been saying superb owl. Right. <laughs> but you're right. For that, the big game, there's 115 million viewers Damn. in and out. So it's a way to get out there. However, if I had to do naming rides, I would do... Like Barclays, like an arena. Yeah. Because like at a football stadium, they use it once a week or maybe 
twice a week if they have a soccer team in the area. But like Barclays has sports and then they have like Beyonce, they have concerts. Yeah. You know, so you get you get your name out there a lot. I think it's just a better value to have a if I next time I come up with twenty million for I was, was going to say yeah welcome to <laughs> welcome to the Fascinators Bowl it's it's a small cockfighting ring in somewhere outside of Las Palmas. So lastly, the most expensive advertisement in history was for Chanel. Oh, yeah, and it's like a three minute advertisement, and it only ran in movie theaters, and it featured Nicole Kidman. What? This one, she was at her peak is like late 2000s. Yeah. And so it's twice, it's still twice the cost of any other advertisement. And it cost $33 million. No, what? Why is, why? Just to get that much reach? Yeah, but it's just three minutes. It can only show in a movie because you can't crop it down to like a 30 second ad on TV. So. Just so you know, thirty-three million is more than the cost to produce Oscar winners like Rocky, <laughs> The French Connection, Chariots of Fire, On the Waterfront, Platoon, The Hurt Locker, Boston Translation, oh. and more and more for a commercial that I don't think I've ever seen. Yeah, well, I mean, how much did the? I guess they played it in their own cinemas, but Nicole Kidman's AMC thing. Have you seen that? I don't believe so. She oh, it was the most. Oh. Yes. Like riffed on thing of last year was it's her in a rhinestone covered suit walking into an empty theater going, we go here to love, to laugh. Even even heartbreak feels good in a place like this. And it plays before every single movie at an AMC. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But she's just she's down for a movie theater commercial, apparently. Heck, yeah. Yeah, she did it. She got some bank for that. Wow. But that's what, yeah, the history and sponsorship and these bowls got me down that rabbit hole. That's crazy. uh, Something. All, I mean, very uh, late stage capitalism. Like it's, I I remember when, I don't know if it's still the crypto arena in, is in LA or Las Vegas. Yes. One of them went under, a bunch of them have. I mean, there used to be the, oh shoot, what's that famous one that went under then Texas. It was one of those famous big companies that just the went Kevin under, Spacey like, Arena. Yeah, the Kevin the Spacey Bowl. is infallible arena. Right. So you do have to watch who your um, sponsor is yeah. because, yeah, these crypto and tech companies, they can rise and fall. Yeah, Sometimes it's... a short life cycle. And I should say these contracts are like twenty years. So okay. when I say like Barclays is getting twenty million a year, it's a yeah. four hundred million dollar deal over twenty years. Because that makes sense because I could imagine how maybe destabilizing it might be to be like, I want to go see the Knicks. Oh, yeah, it's at the Barclays Center now, but next year it's the MasterCard famous, arena. Famous Nathan's. The famous Nathan's hot dog <laughs> Thunderdome. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah, we need to send Charlie up to do a new sign again every year. Yeah, that I, I would be interested in seeing if... Because the cost to sponsor a smaller bowl is is a lot, but it's not, I guess, as crazy as like these Super Bowl ads and stuff. And I wonder if anybody has done a, like, if there's a movie coming out, they're like, this is the Fast and Furious 10 bowl, or this is the the Wonka bowl. I would go to the Wonka bowl. Right. You know, I think most of them don't do that. They do longer term sponsorships 
by okay. design because they want to get some name recognition. I think maybe the clever way is like with LA Bowl, they can do hosted by Jimmy Kimmel or something. Yeah. You know, and Kimmel's whatever he's on ABC, I'm sure pays for that. Yeah. Sponsorship. I don't know who is paying for the Gronk one. Knowing that cat as little as I do, uh, he probably doesn't know what he was signing. <laughs> he <laughs> just signed a contract. Wheel, they wheel him out of everything. Somebody oh, was like, you don't have to play football anymore. And he was like, okay, cool. Anything to be free. And they're like, but you're going to be hosting. Right. Like, he's probably got a show on the Game Show Network at this point. Like, he feels like that kind of guy of like, he's hosting the next Celebrity Pyramid. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like it happened. I don't know if it just. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I might have pulled that out from reality. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. Hey, what's on your mind? Well, Dad, that's fascinating. I tell you what, this is, I'm excited because this was a true rabbit hole that I went down this week. Did you know that the U.S. government has had a sh staggeringly long and bizarre history with dealing with storing massive amounts of cheese? Is that like the government cheese? Yes. Okay, I'm going to get to that. That is 10% of this story, okay. I would say. So, really? yes. Government cheese is a big part of it. So the first notable interaction between the U.S. government and a large amount of cheese happened on New Year's Day, 1802, when Thomas Jefferson opened his door and there was a six-foot diameter wheel of cheese at the White House. Gosh. It was made by a Baptist congregation in Cheshire, Massachusetts, with the milk of over 900 cows as a supporting gift to support Jefferson's idea that religion and government should be separate. And okay. This Baptist congregation was like, hey, we love that you say that you're religious, but that it doesn't affect your policy. We agree. And we're going to show you that by making a giant wheel of cheese. That's out of Leviticus 3, 7, I think. Yeah. And two, what is it? Two loaves, two fishes, 100 cows worth of cheese. <laughs> well, I could feed 5,000 with that. <laughs> yeah. That was the first one. 34 That's years crazy. later, Andrew Jackson is in the White House, and he gets, on, also on New Year's Day, another massive wheel of cheese um, from this guy, Colonel Thomas Meacham, and it was as a display of the production prowess of New York State. Oh, wow. So, like, the, I think it was the Erie Canal was just dug, and the Hudson was, like, this huge thoroughfare of industry uh, all along the Hudson Valley. Factories and farms were cropping up, and so this guy was like, let's show Washington how how cool New York State is by giving him 1,400 pounds of cheese. What? The wheel was two feet high, five feet in diameter. And he also sent wheels half the size to five other cabinet members, like Martin Van Buren got one and other people. So this dude, I mean, has a few no. cheese that he's just sending out. Well, it sounds like a Trojan horse. Are there people, are there like <laughs> Greek hoplites hiding inside? It, I mean, it absolutely, it sounds like that. And honestly, the fallout from this cheese might as well have been the cause of some sleeper <laughs> agents. So he sends it to the White House. Andrew Jackson's like, thank you, but then just leaves it in the entrance for two years uh, <gasps> because he's like, I don't know what to do with this cheese. So the, is the front entrance of the White House is basically unusable for two years because there's this giant wheel of cheese. He said aging in there, but really he was like, I don't know what to do with this. Um, and in the last week of his presidency, he's like, we got to get rid of this cheese. I'm going to throw a massive party. 
Um, so it was an open invitation to anybody living in Washington, D.C. to come grab some cheese. And they had free alcohol, too. So as oh my gosh. you can imagine, it was absolute bedlam. Uh, people ate the cheese, which is also kind of left out for two years. So the, yeah. the, the reports were that the stench was unbearable. Uh, people were getting drunk oh and crawling uh, up the walls, through the windows. Most of the White House was like destroyed. Uh, was this um, like a January 6th? Yeah, basically. Uh, people were just like going crazy in the White House, but they got rid of the cheese. The cheese was all eaten by the time the party was over. But so many crumbs were stomped on like into the floorboards and the carpets that for the first few months of Martin Van Buren's presidency, it just reeked of cheese. Oh, no. And he banned the serving of food at receptions in the White House. <laughs> it, never again. Like, that, what a horrible parting gift to give to your successor. Is, no kidding. It's like putting shrimp in the curtain rods and then <laughs> leaving. Right. You have um, to bring, bring in like a, a dozen mice. Yeah. To uh, ferret it all out. So that's that's the origin. But to bring you to where we are right now, the government is storing 1.4 billion pounds of cheese in converted limestone mines under the ground in Missouri. What? There's just massive caves full from top to bottom with cheese. Oh, my um, word. So how we got here in the depths of the Great Depression, dairy farmers got hit the hardest of you know, obviously everyone was hit in the Great Depression, but dairy farmers were really struggling to turn a profit, especially with a product that just goes bad. It was going bad. No one was buying stuff or they had produced so much that the prices were bottomed out on their dairy. So they started destroying their milk, just dumping it in the street to try to reduce the supply to hopefully even out with the demand and raise the price. Their incomes dropped by two thirds during this time. Wow. So in order to restabilize the economy, you are familiar, I'm sure, with the New Deal that was passed. One of the things that was included in the New Deal is the creation of the Commodity Credit Corporation, which is the CCC. And they have the power to purchase agricultural products at huge scale in order to stabilize food prices. So they just start buying up all this excess milk that the farmers were destroying to be like, ah, you know, subsidize this industry. Yeah. To keep it okay. safe. So a decade or so passes. Refrigerators are more widely spread through homes across America. And it makes people more comfortable with buying milk more regularly because they have a place to kind of safely keep it. But the the CCC still kept buying up dairy products at these subsidized prices to keep the market stable. So yeah. we come to 1973. An economic downturn causes an unprecedented shortage of domestic dairy products. And prices for milk and cheese and butter shoot up. So the wow, government yeah. is like, people can't afford this. Let's intervene. And they relaxed import quotas, but they overcorrected and then dropped the price of milk to an all-time low. So these dairy farmers are pissed. Yeah. So in 1977, Jimmy Carter comes into office and he is campaigning on higher milk prices for farmers. And he... Yeah raised the government support price for milk and then included a provision that semi-annually they would continue to raise the price to kind of meet up with inflation. But what this does to the dairy market is these farmers who get have been hit super hard are suddenly swimming in cash. They're like a, a bottle of milk 
the government's paying like 13 bucks for me to make <laughs> uh, a bottle of milk. So they go yeah. crazy and start trying to produce as much dairy as possible to try to take advantage of this. In 1979, the government dairy purchases were like 247 million, which is, I mean, still staggering. Yeah. Uh, in 19... 19- 83, four years later, the government was spending $2.7 billion buying up all of this excess dairy. Yeah. So at this point, the federal government has now kind of accidentally stockpiled 500 million pounds of cheese and butter that it bought off the market. And they had no idea what to do with it because they they goofed it. So, yeah, this cheese is just sitting in basements. It's starting to get moldy. One USDA official told the Washington Post in 1981, probably the cheapest and most practical thing would be to dump it in the ocean. (laughs) But then we get to Ronald Reagan shows up and he has the solution of government cheese, which you mentioned the top. What do you know about government cheese? I know that they give it to like it's a handout to like churches and some Mm -hmm. groups, welfare, people on welfare. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think it's just a. I don't want to say a handout, but it's just a supplement for food for elderly, like food stamps. I don't know if it's WIC, those types of things. So it's truly like a government program to get cheese out to people. Yeah. It started in 1981. Low-income families were given five-pound blocks of this cheese through the Temporary Emergency Food Assistant Program. It distributed more than 300 million pounds of surplus cheese which became known as government cheese. One of those places, you mentioned a lot of places that would get it, but another place that got it was public schools. So you were in school in 70s and 80s. So I imagine you've probably eaten government cheese before. Probably so. Oh, I'm sure. It was most of the descriptions. I I don't think I've had it ever, maybe. I, I Some have been floating around through my life, but it's not as prevalent anymore. But the description is like, it's just awful American cheese. Like it is the most shelf stable <laughs> cheese they could physically make to try to keep it, to store it for as long as possible because they didn't yeah. know what to do with it. So it's by all accounts, pretty nasty. And like, yeah, uh, I remember it's like a, like a discount Velveeta. Yes. You know, like a soft cheese. There's an old Letterman joke that he would say like Velveeta is, um, a French word that means orange plastic. <laughs> I've been looking at pictures of this stuff all day, and it's, it is not far off. That's funny. Yeah, I don't remember our school keeping it outside the door for two years, though. <laughs> it was, well, did you have any big door stops? <laughs> you might have, it might have been that. You got to age yeah. it just a little bit more. Sure. So this is going pretty well. They get rid of a, a lot of their cheese that they had stockpiled, um, but a lot of people start to have public outcry of, Ew, yuck, this cheese is terrible. Or the more annoying take is is too much government welfare. (laughs) Thanks, Republicans. Yeah. But the Secretary of Agriculture comes into like a house meeting and just holds up a block of moldy cheese. And he's like, hey, in case y'all weren't aware of this, we have 500 million pounds of this stuff and it's terrible. And we're just like trying to give it away, but we got to stop buying cheese. There's too much cheese. (laughs) So there's massive public backlash. And people are like, no more government cheese. Get rid of the cheese. Why are we buying so much cheese? And so federal support for dairy industry is cut heavily. There's a campaign in the 80s to halt, try to halt 9% of dairy production. 
by subsidizing 12,000 farmers to either slaughter their whole herd or export them oh overseas. Gosh. And the a bunch of people, I think it was like 25,000 farmers, I, I said 12,000 farmers signed up to do this. And it was relatively successful. It removed 13 billion pounds of cheese from the market. This and, is successful for the cows. Oh, yeah. Well, true. Poor cows. <laughs> And it ended up saving the government $2 billion that if it kept with its old practices, they would have had to spend on cheese. So by paying the farmers to just like get rid of their herds, they saved themselves from spending like $15 billion on cheese. Oh, my gosh. I also I love how we always say like when it goes to a, money goes to a farmer, it's a subsidy, not a, a welfare. Yeah. Or a handout. It's a subsidy. Yeah. Sounds much better. But it's, it's just a type of welfare. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this history is just a roller coaster of there's too little cheese. The government pays for a lot of cheese. There's too much cheese. We got to get rid of it. The dairy farmers are taking advantage of it. They're making more cheese. Oh, no. So this brings us to the 90s. And dairy farmers have kind of gotten run through the ringer. A little bit with the government being like, yeah, you're right. Cheese and milk is awful and we got to stop it and get rid of it. So they're like, hey, you know, we don't want the government to buy any more cheese, but could you get people more interested in dairy products? Because we're hurting, you know, government cheese hurt us pretty bad. Not all American cheese is American cheese. So the government says, okay, cool. We're going to do some subsidized ad campaigns and the most successful, one of the most successful ad campaigns of all time is yeah. Got Milk. Yes. So this is fascinating fun fact. The earliest like big Got Milk commercial was directed by a young Michael Bay. Oh my gosh. Were there explosions? It, the camera is moving like crazy. It's, <laughs> it is, it's about this, it opens on this guy like eating lunch in a Hamilton museum, like an Alexander Hamilton museum. And he's listening to the radio and it goes, all right, to win $10,000, all I want to know is who killed Alexander Hamilton. And he's, this guy's like eating a peanut butter sandwich. And he's like, oh, I know. And he calls in and they're like, hey, what is it? And he, his mouth is full of sandwich. Yes. So he can't answer. Have you seen this? I remember this. And he's like, yeah, I, yes, I totally remember that. And, and he, it, well, thank goodness it wasn't later because we'd have like Lynn Mel Miranda pop out and start singing. If you want strong bones, you need to get some. <laughs> oh, my God. He's very talented, but he infuriates me. Oh, casting himself as the romantic lead with a ponytail? I think not. <laughs> no, sir. I and would he, duel him as well. Yeah. Aaron Burr, apparently pretty handsome and like cool guy from everything I've, I've learned about him. Yeah. That's a fascinator for another time. But. Yeah. And then this guy can't answer the question because his mouth is full. He doesn't have milk to wash the sandwich down. And so the tagline comes up, got milk. Nice. This could happen to you, I guess. <laughs> uh, you've seen, I'm sure everybody listening to this has seen the posters of celebrities with milk mustaches from the cast of Friends to Kermit the Frog to probably a lot of people like Bill Cosby and Michael Jordan athletes and actors and uh, presidents and celebrities. So it's this huge deal. It was aimed at school-aged children. I remember growing up, there's Got Milk posters all over my cafeteria. Oh, yeah. And it was, and then they got, they replaced it with reading. I think they realized that reading might be more important than <laughs> yeah. 
it piggybacked off the idea that milk with high calcium content and it was low fat. So the 90s kids loved it was an ideal substance for encouraging healthy childhood growth, which I think the science has kind of proven milk's actually not all that great for you or certainly not as as good as we made it out to be. But to this day, milk has to legally be offered at every meal in a U.S. school district if they wish to get reimbursed by the federal government. Okay, interesting. I can't think of the last time I just drank straight milk, just a glass of milk. Right. It was it was every meal. Also, weirdly, in 2009, Got Milk produced a 22-minute rock opera called Battle for Milquarious. I, I skimmed through it. It looks a lot like the the darknesses, I believe, in a thing called Love Music Video. Oh, ooh, I'm intrigued. about a rock star named White Gold trying to rescue his girlfriend, Strawberry Summers, from the evil Nasterius who stole all the milk. It's, it's absolute. I, it's a fever dream. I don't know how... It was made. There's no celebrities involved. It, I don't know where it aired, if it was ever on TV, but it's on YouTube. You can find it. It's That's amazing. It's crazy. So after Got Milk was a huge success, it started to die down and they shifted their focus to cheese because the dairy farmer's like, great, they're buying milk. What about cheese? So it became the new focus for another ad campaign in the 2000s with, quote, in a series of confidential agreements approved by agricultural secretaries in both the Bush and Obama administrations, dairy management worked with restaurants to expand their menus with cheese-laden products. So think of like the Domino's stuffed crust pizza, Taco Bell's oh. triple cheese quesadillas, schools having pizza Fridays. The U.S. Department of Agriculture paid for a $12 million marketing campaign for Domino's to develop a new line of pizzas with 40% more cheese. Oh, my gosh. Like, I didn't realize that at all, but there's a huge uptick in the value of cheese, how much we're talking about cheese, I think, culturally. Uh, sure. But I, it's so sneaky with all these, all these restaurants, like stuffed cheese crust pizza, all these, like, cheese pull-apart bread, Doritos Locos Tacos, probably, cheesy gordita right. crunch. That's uh, diabolical. And the government paid for it. Yeah. And I'll close with this statistic, which is interesting to think about. In 2012, I couldn't find up-to-date statistics. This was the last ERS survey on this. But in 2012, Americans were eating 220% more cheese than they were in 1970, but 20% less dairy overall. So I, the government subsidizing the industry continues to leave them with growing stockpiles. Of oh my food. gosh. And now there's still 1.4 billion pounds of cheese under the ground. That is more cheese than the size of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> and it's in Missouri. Oh, that is fascinating. Isn't Evan. that nuts? Oh, that's so good. I was talking to Claire about this, and there's probably room for a follow-up because she was like, oh, this is... I think a much bigger issue of debate within the government food intervention system of like it is this kind of like the idea of Team America world police, like America has to stop all crime across the globe with our military. Right. It's like the American government has to have a finger on the food system of like we have to keep cheese the same price. We have to keep dairy the same price when it's like. Things just happen. Like uh, 30% of America is lactose intolerant. 
So many people are drinking alternative milks now, like almond milk, oat milk. It's I feel I get a look every time I order regular milk at a coffee shop. <laughs> like, sir, you know. Yeah, you know you don't have to do this anymore. But it's yeah, it's right. such a a thing. So kind of like, hey, we can let's focus on something else. You know, we we can have the demand go down because it has certainly for milk and dairy products, but the government is won't let it is artificially right. keeping the the demand there. Right. Yeah, we do that with a lot, like corn. I mean, there's a big rabbit hole with corn and how yeah. we subsidize that. And now it's like corn growers in Mexico can't keep pay, so their farms are failing because we yeah, yeah, subsidize our farmers so much in so many ways. But yeah, and it's one of those things, I think, even with our hyper-interventionalists in terms of military around the world, like I would like phase these things out like long term, mm. you know, just fair for generational farmers to say, you know, hey, we're going to slow down these subsidies over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So like the next generation knows, because we've got a friend that we live in kind of some farm country and cattle country. He was doing like crops and stuff. Mm. And it was just so much work. For the payoff, he switched mainly just to grass-fed beef. But you can do that over time. So he's still a farmer and loves it, but yeah. it was not working for him in this area. So that's where like these dairy farmers or corn farmers, maybe they can do soybeans now. You yeah. Know, they've got a lot of the equipment. Our, our through line though, through both of them, advertising. Uh, yes. Well, and got that's milk. so awesome. Yeah, because I saw the advertising. Because that I also had, you know, some of the best advertising at campaigns and Just Milk was one of them. And along with like, Just Do It, Where's the Beef, you know, all these that are just part of our lexicon. Uh, hey, but yeah. I want to leave you with this because I thought you were going to veer into this territory. And this is, I'm, I'm toying with, this is the basis for a fascinator of Get mine <laughs> in the future. But there is, when you were talking about the invention of writing and uh, cuneiform and hieroglyphs and stuff and the original advertisement, I thought you might talk about the first ever bar joke, like a priest walks into a bar or, you know, that kind of thing. It is... Which, oh, side note, which I thought that's where you were going when you said the Secretary of Agriculture walks into a room. <laughs> walks into a bar and he's got five pounds of government cheese. So the, one of the earliest examples of a bar joke is Sumerian. It's from um, uh. between... 4500 BC and 1900 BC, and it is a dog walked into a tavern and said, I can't see a thing. I'll open this one. The humor of it is probably related to the Sumer way of life and has been lost, but the words remain. Which is, <laughs> I love, they're like, we don't know why this is funny, but I bet this was funny at some point. And so I, I'm thinking about talking about things that have lost their context, but are still part of life. Oh, yes. That's good. I've got that kind of like the whole nine yards, things yeah. like that. Yes. So the noodle on that, that's all we have for you this week for another episode of Fascinators. As always, if you want to learn more about the show or you have something that you think we should do some research into, you can let us know on social media. It's Fascinators Pod on Instagram. But that'll do it for us this week. Dad, what do we always say? Hey, we couldn't have done it without you. Thanks for helping. Thanks for helping. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you all next time. Bye.